Chapter Four, Part Two of the Life of Cicero, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Philippa Jevons. The Life of Cicero, Volume One, by Anthony Trollope. Chapter Four: His Early Pleadings, Part Two. There were three special modes of oratory in which Cicero displayed his powers. He spoke either before judges, a large body of judges who sat collected round the praetor, as in the case of Sextus Roscius, or, in cases of civil law, before a single judge, selected by the praetor, who sat with an assessor, as in the case of Roscius the actor, which shall be mentioned just now. This was the recognised work of his life, in which he was engaged, at any rate, in his earlier years. Or he spoke to the populace, in what was called the conchio, or assembly of the people, speeches made before a crowd called together for a special purpose, as were the second and third orations against Catiline, or in the senate, in which a political rather than a judicial sentence was sought from the votes of the senators. There was a fourth mode of address, which in the days of the emperors became common, when the advocate spoke ad principem, that is, to the emperor himself, or to some ruler acting for him as sole judge. It was thus that Cicero pleaded before Caesar for Ligarius and for King Deiotarus in the latter years of his life. In each of these, a separate manner and a distinct line had to be adopted, in all of which he seems to have been equally happy and equally powerful. In judging of his speeches, we are bound to remember that they were not probably uttered with their words arranged as we read them. Some of those we have were never spoken at all, as was the case with the five last very narrations, and with the second, by far the longest, of the Philippics. Some, as was specially the case with the defence of Milo, the language of which is perhaps as perfect as that of any oration which has reached us from ancient or modern days, were only spoken in part, so that that which we read bears but small relation to that which was heard. All were probably retouched for publication that words so perfect in their construction should have flowed from a man's mouth, often with but little preparation, we cannot conceive. But we know from the evidence of the day, and from the character which remained of him through after Roman ages, how great was the immediate effect of his oratory. We can imagine him, in this case of Sextus Roscius, standing out in the open air in the forum, with the movable furniture of the court around him, the seats on which the judges sat with the praetor in the midst of them, all senators in their white robes with broad purple borders. There too were seated, we may suppose on lower benches, the friends of the accused, and the supporters of the accusation, and around, at the back of the orator, was such a crowd as he, by the character of his eloquence, may have drawn to the spot. Cicero was still a young man, but his name had made itself known, and we can imagine that some tidings had got abroad as to the bold words which would be spoken in reference to Sulla and Chrysogonus. The scene must have been very different from that of one of our dingy courts, in which the ermine is made splendid only by the purity and learning of the man who wears it. In Rome all exterior gifts were there. Cicero knew how to use them, so that the judges who made so large a part in the pageant should not dare to disgrace themselves because of its publicity. Quintilian gives his pupils much advice as to the way in which they should dress themselves and hold their togas, changing the folds of the garment so as to suit the different parts of the speech, how they should move their arms and hold their heads, and turn their necks, 
even how they should comb their hair when they came to stand in public and plead at the bar. All these arts, with many changes, no doubt, as years rolled on, had come down to him from days before Cicero, but he always refers to Cicero as though his were the palmy days of Roman eloquence. We can well believe that Cicero had studied many of these arts by his twenty-seventh year, that he knew how to hold his toga and how to drop it, how to make the proper angle with his elbow, how to comb his hair, and yet not be a fop, and to add to the glory of his voice all the personal graces which were at his command. Sextus Roscius Amerinus, with all his misfortunes, injustices, and miseries, is now to us no more than the name of a fable. But to those who know it, the fable is, I think, more attractive than most novels. We know that Cicero pleaded other causes before he went to Greece in the year 79 BC, especially those for Publius Quintius, of which we have his speech, and that for a lady of Aretium, in which he defended her right to be regarded as a free woman of that city. In this speech he again attacked Sulla, the rights of the lady in question having been placed in jeopardy by an enactment made by the dictator, and again Cicero was successful. This is not extant. Then he started on his travels, as to which I have already spoken. While he was absent, Sulla died, and the condition of the Republic during his absence was anything but hopeful. Lepidus was consul during these two years, than whom no weaker officer ever held rule in Rome, or rebelled against Rome, and Sertorius, who was in truth a greater man, was in arms against Rome in Spain, as a rebel, though he was in truth struggling to create a new Roman power which should be purer than that existing in Italy. What Cicero thought of the condition of his country at this time, we have no means of knowing. If he then wrote letters, they have not been preserved. His spoken words speak plainly enough of the condition of the courts of law, and let us know how resolved he was to oppose himself to their iniquities. A young man may devote himself to politics with as much ardour as a senior, but he cannot do so if he be intent on a profession. It is only when his business is so well grasped by him as to sit easily on him that he is able to undertake the second occupation. There is a rumour that Cicero, when he returned home from Greece, thought for a while of giving himself up to philosophy, so that he was called Greek and sophist in ridicule. It is not, however, to be believed that he ever for a moment abandoned the purpose he had formed for his own career. It will become evident as we go on with his life that this so-called philosophy of the Greeks was never to him a matter of more than interesting inquiry. A full, active, human life, in which he might achieve for himself all the charms of high rank, gilded by intelligence, erudition, and refined luxury, in which also he might serve his country, his order, and his friends, just such a life as our leading men propose to themselves here today in our country— this is what Cicero had determined to achieve from his earliest years, and it was not likely that he should be turned from it by the pseudo-logic of Greek philosophers. That the logic even of the academy was false to him we have ample evidence, not only in his life, but in his writings. There is a story that during his travels he consulted the oracle at Delphi as to his future career, and that on being told that he must look to his own genius and not to the opinion of the world at large, he determined to abandon the honours of the Republic. That he should have talked among the young men of the day of his philosophic investigations till they laughed at him and gave him a nickname may be probable, but it cannot have been that he ever thought of giving up the bar. 
In the year of his return to Rome, when he was thirty, he married Terentia, a noble lady of whom we are informed that she had a good fortune and that her sister was one of the Vestal Virgins. Her nobility is inferred from the fact that the virgins were, as a rule, chosen from the noble families, though the law required only that they should be the daughters of free parents and of persons engaged in no mean pursuits. As to the more important question of Terentia's fortune, there has never been a doubt. Plutarch, however, does not make it out to have been very great, assuming a sum which was equal to about £4,200 of our money. He tells us at the same time that Cicero's own fortune was less than £4,000. But in both of these statements, Plutarch, who was forced to take his facts where he could get them, and was not very particular in his authority, probably erred. The early education of Cicero, and the care taken to provide him with all that money could purchase, is, I think, conclusive of his father's wealth, and the mode of life adopted by Cicero shows that at no period did he think it necessary to live, as men do live, with small incomes. We shall find as we go on that he spent his money freely, as men did at Rome who had the command of large means. We are aware that he was often in debt, we find that from his letters, but he owed money not as a needy man does, but as one who is speculative, sanguine, and quite confident of his own resources. The management of incomes was not so fixed a thing then as it is with us now. Speculation was even more rampant, and rising men were willing and were able to become indebted for enormous sums, having no security to offer but the promise of their future career. Caesar's debts during various times of his life were proverbial, he is said to have owed over £300,000 before he reached his first step in the public employment. Cicero rushed into no such danger as this. We know, indeed, that when the time came to him for public expenditure on a great scale, as, for instance, when he was filling the office of Aedile, he kept within bounds, and he did not lavish money which he did not possess. We know also that he refrained, altogether refrained, from the iniquitous habits of making large fortunes which were open to the great politicians of the Republic. To be quaestor that he might be aedile, aedile that he might be praetor and consul, and praetor and consul that he might rob a province, pillage Sicily, Spain, or Asia, and then at last come back a rich man, rich enough to cope with all his creditors, and to bribe the judges should he be accused for his misdeeds, these were the usual steps to take by enterprising Romans toward power, wealth, and enjoyment. But it will be observed, in this sequence of circumstances, the robbery of the province was essential to success. This was sometimes done after so magnificent a fashion as to have become an immortal fact in history. The instance of Verres will be narrated in the next chapter but one, Something of moderation was more general, so that the fleeced provincial might still live, and prefer sufferance to the doubtful chances of recovery. A proconsul might rob a great deal, and still return with hands apparently clean, bringing with him a score of provincial deputies to lord his goodness before the citizens at home. But Cicero robbed not at all. Even they who have been most hard upon his name, accusing him of insincerity and sometimes of want of patriotism, because his Roman mode of declaring himself without reserve in his letters has been perpetuated for us by the excellence of their language, even they have acknowledged that he kept his hands studiously clean in the service of his country, when to have clean hands was so peculiar as to be regarded as absurd. 
There were other means in which a noble Roman might make money, and might do so without leaving the city. An orator might be paid for his services as an advocate. Cicero, had such a trade been opened to him, might have made almost any sum to which his imagination could have stretched itself. Such a trade was carried on to a very great extent. It was illegal, such payment having been forbidden by the Lex Cincia de Muneribus, passed more than a century before Cicero began his pleadings. But the law had become a dead letter in the majority of cases. There can be no doubt that Hortensius, the predecessor and great rival of Cicero, took presents, if not absolute payment. Indeed, the myth of honorary work, which is in itself absurd, was no more practicable in Rome than it has been found to be in England, where every barrister is theoretically presumed to work for nothing. That the lex cincia, as far as the payment of advocates went, was absurd, may be allowed by us all. Services for which no regular payment can be exacted will always cost more than those which have a defined price. But Cicero would not break the law. It has been hinted, rather than stated, that he, like other orators of the day, had his price. He himself tells us that he took nothing, and no instance has been adduced that he had ever done so. He is free enough in accusing Hortensius of having accepted a beautiful statuette, an ivory sphinx of great value. What he knew of Hortensius, Hortensius would have known of him, had it been there to know, and what Hortensius or others had heard would certainly have been told. As far as we can learn, there is no ground for accusing Cicero of taking fees or presents beyond the probability that he would do so. I think we are justified in believing that he did not do so, because those who watched his conduct closely found no opportunity of exposing him. That he was paid by different allied states for undertaking their protection in the Senate is probable, such having been a custom not illegal. We know that he was specially charged with the affairs of Dyrrachium, and had probably amicable relations with other allied communities. This, however, must have been later in life, when his name was sufficiently high to ensure the value of his services, and when he was a senator. Noble Romans also, noble as they were, and infinitely superior to the little cares of trade, were accustomed to traffic very largely in usury. We shall have a terrible example of such baseness on the part of Brutus, that Brutus whom we have been taught to regard as almost on a par with Cato in purity. To lend money to citizens, or more profitably to allied states and cities, at enormous rates of interest, was the ordinary resource of a Roman nobleman in quest of revenue. The allied city, when absolutely eaten to the bone by one noble Roman, who had plundered it as proconsul or governor, would escape from its immediate embarrassment by borrowing money from another noble Roman, who would then grind its very bones in exacting his interest and his principal. Cicero, in the most perfect of his works, the treatise De Officiis, an essay in which he instructs his son as to the way in which a man should endeavour to live so as to be a gentleman, inveighs both against trade and usury. When he tells us that they are to be accounted mean who buy in order that they may sell, we, with our later lights, do not quite agree with him, although he founds his assertion on an idea which is too often supported by the world's practice, namely that men cannot do a retail business profitably without lying. The doctrine, however, has always been common that retail trade is not compatible with noble bearing, 
and was practised by all Romans who aspired to be considered among the upper classes. That other and certainly baser means of making money by usury was, however, only too common. Crassus, the noted rich man of Rome in Caesar's day, who was one of the first triumvirate and who perished ignominiously in Parthia, was known to have gathered much of his wealth by such means. But against this Cicero is as staunchly severe as against shopkeeping. First of all, he says, these profits are despicable which incur the hatred of men, such as those of gatherers of custom and lenders of money on usury. Again we are entitled to say that Cicero did not condescend to enrich himself by the means which he himself condemns, because had he done so the accusations made against him by his contemporaries would have reached our ears. Nor is it probable that a man in addressing his son as to rules of life would have spoken against a method of gathering riches which, had he practised it himself, must have been known to his son. His rules were severe as compared with the habits of the time. His dear friend Atticus did not so govern his conduct, or Brutus, who, when he wrote the Deoficis, was only less dear to him than Atticus. But Cicero himself seems to have done so faithfully. We learn from his letters that he owned house property in Rome to a considerable extent, having probably thus invested his own money or that of his wife. He inherited also the family house at Arpinum. He makes it a matter for boasting that he had received in the course of his life by legacies nearly two hundred thousand pounds, twenty million sesterces, in itself a source of great income, and one common with Romans of a high position. Of the extent of his income it is impossible to speak, or even make a guess. But we do know that he lived always as a rich man, as one who regards such a condition of life as essentially proper to him, and that though he was often in debt, as was customary with noble Romans, he could always write about his debts in a vein of pleasantry, showing that they were not a heavy burden to him. And we know that he could at all times command for himself villas, books, statues, ornaments, columns, galleries, charming shades, and all the delicious appendages of mingled wealth and intelligence. He was, as might be, some English marquis, who, though up to his eyes in mortgages, is quite sure that he will never want any of the luxuries befitting a marquis. Though we have no authority to tell us how his condition of life became what it was, it is necessary that we should understand that condition if we are to get a clear insight into his life. Of that condition we have ample evidence. He commenced his career as a youth upon whose behalf nothing was spared, and when he settled himself in Rome, with the purport of winning for himself the highest honours of the Republic, he did so with the means of living like a nobleman. But the point on which it is most necessary to insist is this, that while so many, I may almost say all around him in his own order, were unscrupulous as to their means of getting money, he kept his hands clean. The practice then was much as it is now. A gentleman in our days is supposed to have his hands clean, but there has got abroad among us a feeling that only let a man rise high enough, soil will not stick to him. To rob is base, but if you rob enough, robbery will become heroism, or, at any rate, magnificence. With Caesar his debts have been accounted happy audacity, his pillage of Gaul and Spain, and of Rome also, have indicated only the success of the great general. His cruelty, which in cold-blooded efficiency has equalled if not exceeded the bloodthirstiness of any other tyrant, 
has been called clemency. I do not mean to draw a parallel between Caesar and Cicero. No two men could have been more different in their natures or in their career. But the one has been lauded because he was unscrupulous, and the other has incurred reproach because at every turn and twist in his life scruples dominated him. I do not say that he always did what he thought to be right. A man who doubts much can never do that. The thing that was right to him in the thinking became wrong to him in the doing. That from which he has shrunk as evil when it was within his grasp takes the colour of good when it has been beyond his reach. Cicero had not the stuff in him to rule the Rome and the Romans of his period, but he was a man whose hands were free from all stain, either of blood or money, and for so much let him at any rate have the credit. Between the return of Cicero to Rome in 77 BC and his election as quaestor in 75, in which period he married Terentia, he made various speeches in different causes, of which only one remains to us, or rather a small part of one. This is notable as having been spoken in behalf of that Roscius, the great comic actor, whose name has become familiar to us on account of his excellence, almost as have those of Garrick, of Siddons, and of Talma. It was a pleading as to the value of a slave, and the amount of pecuniary responsibility attaching to Roscius on account of the slave, who had been murdered when in his charge. As to the murder, no question is made. The slave was valuable, and the injury done to his master was a matter of importance. He, having been a slave, could have no stronger a claim for an injury done to himself than would a dog or a horse. The slave, whose name was Panurge, a name which has since been made famous as having been borrowed by Rabelais, probably from this occurrence, and given to his demon of mischief, showed aptitude for acting, and was therefore valuable. Then one Flavius killed him. Why or how, we do not know, and having killed him, settled with Roscius for the injury by giving him a small farm. But Roscius had only borrowed or hired the man from one Chirea, or was in partnership with Chirea as to the man, and on that account paid something out of the value of the farm for the loss incurred. But the owner was not satisfied, and after a lapse of time made a further claim. Hence arose the action, in pleading which Cicero was successful. In the fragment we have of the speech, there is nothing remarkable except the studied clearness of the language, but it reminds us of the opinion which Cicero had expressed of this actor in the oration which he made for Publius Quintius, who was the brother-in-law of Roscius. He is such an actor, says Cicero, that there is none other on the stage worthy to be seen, and such a man that among men he is the last that should have become an actor. The orator's praise of the actor is not of much importance. Had not Roscius been great in his profession, his name would not have come down to later ages. Nor is it now a matter of great interest that the actor should have been highly praised as a man by his advocate. But it is something for us to know that the stage was generally held in such low repute as to make it seem a pity that a good man should have taken himself to such a calling. In the year 76 BC, Cicero became father of a daughter, whom we shall know as Tullia, who, as she grew up, became the one person whom he loved best in all the world, and was elected quaestor. Cicero tells us of himself that in the preceding year he had solicited the quaestorship, when Cotta was candidate for the consulship, and Hortensius for the praetorship. 
There are in the dialogue De Claris Oratoribus, which has had the name of Brutus always given to it, some passages in which the orator tells us more of himself than in any other of his works. I will annex a translation of a small portion because of its intrinsic interest, but I will relegate it to an appendix, because it is too long either for insertion in the text or for a note. End of chapter 4